Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today's episode is sponsored by Speak for the Unborn. Speak for the Unborn trains and equips churches to become winsome, gospel-centered, hope-filled voices for life in their communities. If you desire for your church to be more involved in biblical pro-life ministry that's centered around the gospel hope and love of Christ for abortion-minded individuals, Speak for the Unborn can help. Speak for the Unborn will help you create a plan for holistic pro-life ministry within the church, as well as to provide training for sidewalk counseling that's winsome, gospel-centered, and compelled by love. Speak for the Unborn's ministry is unique because it works under the governance of the elders of a local church. It's completely customizable to the unique needs of your church and community. Speak for the Unborn churches are also connected to an entire network of like-minded churches across North America that support, encourage, and pray for one another in pro-life ministry. For more information on how Speak for the Unborn can serve your local church, visit speakfortheunborn.com. That's speakfortheunborn.com or send an email to info at speakfortheunborn.com. On today's episode, it's the return of Dan Trier. He's the first guest to return to Church Grammar. We talked back at the beginning of the podcast about theological interpretation and a handful of other things, and we hinted at his new book that's just released recently called Introducing Evangelical Theology. So we talk about that more on this episode. He structures the book around the Nicene Creed, and so it's a very interesting way to introduce evangelical theology, to teach a sort of systematic theology in a brief, more of an undergrad level. And so we're hoping that you can hear about this book and be interested in going and purchasing it. It's one of my favorite books of the year I put on the blog, where you can find uh, church grammar episodes, secundumscripturus.com. I have fun spelling that. Put that on there on my best books of 2019, and this was one of them, one of my favorite books that came out. I'm hoping to use it as a textbook or use it in other ways uh, in the classroom here at Cedarville. So I hope you'll enjoy the conversation and be encouraged to go and buy that book and just to buy more from Dan Trier and to learn more from him. He's one of my favorite theologians in the world, perhaps one of the most underrated evangelical theologians that's publishing today. So yeah, go check that out. We are sponsored by B&H Academic bhacademic.com to find out about all of their new releases. We just had Tommy Kidd on the podcast last week. He had a two-volume American history book that came out with B&H Academic, and they've just released a single-volume version of it that you might want to check out. bhacademic.com. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, csbible.com. The Christian Standard Bible is a English translation that is faithful to the original languages without sacrificing clarity. So again, go find out more about them at csbible.com. And now my conversation with Dan Trier, but first, no big deal. I'm here at ETS with Dan Trier. We, uh, you're the first repeat guest on Church That is Grammar. an honor. So yeah, uh, it's an honor or it means that uh, nobody else wants to talk to me and you were <laughs> much of a sucker to <laughs> come talk to me, but I appreciate you doing it. We'll make this, uh, make this an ETS tradition, uh, getting together and talking. So thank you. Um, I think we need to talk first though about sports because that's what we did last time and you and I have the affinity. So at the time we're recording this, the Cowboys just beat the Lions. So that worked out. I, well, for me, I can concede pretty much anything about the Lions. <laughs> uh, are you sad that Matt Stafford's hurt? Are you are you a Stafford guy? Uh, I feel my like he's fantasy really... football team is named Stafford Moans. <laughs> Last year it was named Stafford Loans. Next year it'll probably be Stafford Groans. <laughs> um, yes, but I drafted Ben Lo- Ben Roethlisberger and Matt Stafford as yeah. uh, 
two of my quarterbacks. So yeah. lost lost both of them already. That's not working so well. <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like he's a he's from Dallas, so I like him. He went yeah. to you know, but I feel like he's a um, a uh, tortured figure for the Lions fans because there's some people who love him and some who are like. We're just not going to get past it. So where are you on that? Are you? Um, I think he'd be just fine if we had a defense and a consistent running game, and yeah. et cetera. Yeah, Kerryon Johnson was doing good, and then he yeah, got hurt. So the, the glory of being a Lions fan is you don't even have to worry about it because we've been losers <laughs> for 60 years, and so you can already just discount your hopes. Well, when you have an 0-16 year, everything's kind of up from there. Everything so. is up from there. Uh, Lions, I mean uh, Tigers. Say what? Lions and Tigers. I just thought about that. Yes, the yeah. uh, all of my emotional investment at the moment is in my favorite player, Lou Whitaker, mm-hmm. being up for possible Hall of Fame uh, consideration again. December eighth, I believe, we will find out whether my childhood dreams That's are awesome. realized or crushed. How many times do they get a chance at that? In the because that comes from like the what's it called? This the, comes from the Modern Players Committee, yeah, I yeah. think, and so they've put Alan Trammell and Jack Morris in now from mm-hmm. the 1984 era, best year of my life. Yeah. Um, but you can't have Trammell in without Whitaker. I think Whitaker was actually a better player, so, so I am lobbying. Feel like it should work out. Um, I, I haven't gotten to praying about this yet, but uh, <laughs> my view of providence suggests that I shouldn't at least not directly but nevertheless <laughs> that that's where all of my uh, emotional Detroit Tigers chips uh, yeah. they're going to the middle well as a sports fan you know sometimes when you pray for joy and comfort there's an implicit thing there that god I also want my sports team to win so you don't have to pray directly <laughs> to get the to get the point across all right so what i want to do really is just talk about your new book introducing evangelical theology we teased it a little bit last year we yes, started talking about you. it a little bit um, right after the house fire and all that so that was yes. a, that was a fun so we don't have to bring up that again, even though I just did. But, you did. Um, <laughs> but very deftly. Yeah, see, that's you know, that's the the uh, the gift of a podcast host. That's you know? why you're you making the money that you're making. That's right. Yeah, podcasts. Is, I was telling you before this podcast. I know. Is, a Christian academic podcast, that niche podcast, there's a lot of money to be had here, you know, yes. so I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to do my part. So, <laughs> all right, so let's talk about it a little bit. So you called introducing evangelical theology. So, um, I think the most obvious question is how do you define evangelical theology? What's the essence of it? What do you mean when you say that? Cause that can mean, you know, Bird had his evangelical theology and his was probably a little bit different take than yours would be on what that means. So, so how would you describe that? So I think the first thing to say is that I define it very briefly and uh, for good or ill, spend very little time on the word evangelical and trying to get clear on the meaning of that term from a historical or sociological or theological perspective. I just try to get into the work of doing the kind of theology and the kind of instruction that we want rather than addressing the navel-gazing questions, with which Kevin Van Hooser and I have addressed elsewhere in our co-authored book, and which are, you know, sort of beaten to death in lots of places. So I don't spend a lot of time on the technical points. But I think the thrust of it is um, biblical gospel-centered, uh, and that for a an orthodox, pietist, Protestant subculture, mm-hmm. that we kind of know it when we see it. So... Um, for that subculture, how are we going to do theology that is centered in the biblical gospel, and then um, a particular structure that's related to the creeds and so forth mm-hmm. takes shape from there? Yeah, so you do start out uh, kind of in the introduction, you talk about uh, Christian theology has a Trinitarian and narrative structure. So then you kind of start, you build really the structure of the book on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Start with the Nicene Creed. So talk through a little bit, what do you mean by a Trinitarian and narrative structure? Uh, at the heart of uh, 
the Christian faith as the Bible presents it in uh, unified canonical form is uh, God and the gospel. And the identity of God is triune, mm -hmm. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's the who. And uh, we come to know who God is through what God uh, has done and how God continues to act even in speaking to us through Scripture about mm -hmm. what God has done and revealing who God is through um, these words and deeds. So that's where the narrative comes in. Um, not all of the Bible is narrative, but the Bible's overall structure does comprise a kind of large-scale narrative or drama. And Van Hooser's work has helped me to see that um, so much of the action in the narrative is carried forward by speaking mm -hmm. or by the coordination of speaking and certain other kinds of action so that it really does have a, a dramatic shape and a kind of dialogical shape in terms of the speaking and acting of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so that makes sense for then why you sort of structure the book the way that you do. So uh, in the first part of the book, you talk about uh, the Nicene Creed being faith-seeking understanding. So talk through that faith-seeking understanding. Obviously, that's a, that's a well-known term, but how are you sort of applying it in terms of how we do evangelical theology? So uh, we're trying to expound theology in terms of the positive content of biblical revelation, not um, agonizing too much about apologetic or preliminary philosophical questions. Uh, they have their place, but if we spend a lot of time justifying the doing of theology, mm -hmm. the temptation then is to justify the doing of theology according to extra-theological canons and criteria that actually diminish the clarity of the presentation of the biblical gospel. So I'm trying to stick with um, uh, first things, you yeah. know, and and really have it be decidedly uh, theological in the exposition. And that means starting from a standpoint of faith and then pursuing the kind of whole-personed, communal, um, biblically-informed understanding that follows from a biblical notion um, of faith. And I think people will see a lot of appearances of the book of Isaiah in the book, um, I've just become more and more impressed by how uh, Isaiah is crucial to the biblical gospel, not only carrying forward so much from the Old Testament, but then bringing it into mm -hmm. the New Testament early in the gospels particularly, but also in Paul. And so faith-seeking understanding does sort of draw together uh, Isaiah themes about how it is we're going to relate to God in Christ that Paul draws together so much. And I talk a little bit about that in the first chapter especially. So would you say, pedagogically speaking, if you can get people to sort of work down the, like, let's get to the core theological foundations, then the apologetics, the ethics, the things that are out there that we care about and that matter, those will actually be done more properly? Or would you say that they'll yeah. just, the order of priority will be well, uh, done well? Or how would you kind of flush that out? I think... I think the best defense is a good offense. <laughs> um, so that doesn't mean that we don't speak into those um, objections or that we don't ever speak um, defensively, but it does mean that we want to have our responses be properly theological mm -hmm. and, and properly biblical. And so we first need to really learn the language and inhabit the logic uh, of our faith 
in order to be able um, to defend it well and in order to be able to justify its um, its intellectual inquiry mm-hmm. uh, in appropriate philosophical ways. Okay, so then you go, uh, kind of go down the road here. We're not going to try to read your whole book on this podcast, but at least give a good it's a kind relief of, to everyone, I'm sure. <laughs> a good outline, at least. Um, so you have Ten Commandments as moral formation. I thought that was a really interesting way to. It is funny you're reading a theology book and you keep going back to the Old Testament, which is what a lot of theology books are not doing. Uh, so talk through I that a little bit. I hope that's somewhat distinctive, but that it becomes less distinctive in <laughs> yeah, the future. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Could, could be worse, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, th- this is uh, an example of Protestants, I think, needing to relearn our heritage. So Luther, Calvin, and others, as they are trying to develop this basic catechetical instruction in the faith... Uh, for those early uh, uh, generations of reformers, um, it was the Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer um, that were foundational for catechesis. It wasn't just beliefs. It was belonging and behavior, and it, and it wasn't just uh, creedal beliefs, but it was these anchor texts of Scripture that address moral and spiritual formation. I didn't know this until, you know, really after seminary education when in the local church then uh, we my wife and I became responsible for teaching the uh, confirmation class and uh, our pastor helped us to see just how fundamental Mm. this was for the early Protestants that we would use these instruments and include the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer as a robust part of catechesis and uh, from that uh, service in the local church, I learned something about my heritage that I should have known, and I, I want to help pass that on. And I think it's great, then, if that helps a book to be more robustly biblical as a theology textbook. So what you're telling me is that seminarians can learn something from the church even after they graduate. I am telling you that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not necessarily casting any uh, aspersions on a seminary education. That's that's what I I was doing. I had a great seminary education, (laughs) but um, seminary education well done prepares you for a life of ongoing ongoing growth and service Mm -hmm. in the church. And that has been a blessing and a challenge for me. Yeah, that's a good word. Okay, then you talk about, so you, you mentioned this already, but Lord's Prayer as spiritual formation. So, um, yeah, just talk through kind of like what that what that looks like in the book and what you're trying to accomplish there. So, um, I do think the Ten Commandments um, in the Protestant tradition give you kind of the content of natural law. Um, the content of at least some things that all human beings, even if they are unredeemed, should know and follow even if they don't. Mm -hmm. And so there is some kind of expectation that a properly functioning culture should be oriented to um, the worship of a god and certain kinds of treatment of neighbors. Mm -hmm. Um, But there still, of course, is a more specifically covenantal and redeemed shape to what the Ten Commandments means in a a life that's graced Um, by redemption. Well, when we come to the Lord's Prayer, then we have a a strong focus on prayer, Mm -hmm. right? That puts that love of God and neighbor 
in a less generic and more specific context of a worshiping community and a worshiping community that by grace in relation to Jesus Christ can pray with him, our Father. Mm -hmm. And that our both identifies us with Jesus and participating in the filial relationship that he has with God by nature. We can now come into that by grace. And that our, the plurals, identify us with each other so that the kinds of things we pray for, such as give us our daily bread, Mm -hmm. bring us into relationship with one another as well. If I am praying that with those who are in Christ and for those who are in Christ, suddenly I realize that I may be part of how God answers Mm. uh, some of those prayers. uh, And that may even shape what I imagine the content of my prayer to be. So um, spiritual formation then, of course, is ultimately how we are formed as persons in relation to the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. and the Holy Spirit's um, bringing us into this vital union with Christ. But what is the Spirit doing in us? Um, The Spirit is bringing us to the Father through Christ, and at the heart, the, the Spirit is bearing witness with our spirits that we are God's children and leading us to cry, Abba, Father, leading us to pray. So prayer... Um, is right right at the heart of the Christian life, and I wish that were more true of my own. <laughs> uh, so we talked. You talked about uh, kind of how Isaiah functions in the book. You know, obviously there's the triune name and some other places where you're working that in. So so talk through just a few of the anchor Isaiah texts and how those are influencing sort of how you're doing things in this book. Well, beyond um, faith-seeking understanding and the way that draws from Isaiah 7 and ways that some of Paul's justification and righteousness, righteousness language is drawing from aspects of Isaiah, I see Isaiah 40 as really, really prominent. So the Doctrine of God chapter has a brief exposition of Isaiah 40, and my understanding of the core divine perfections is drawn from Isaiah 40 as a kind of representative text. And that text epitomizes something that I hope is true of the rest of the book as well, that it it draws together in right proportions creation and redemption. Mm -hmm. Rather than being a merely creational theology of the first article of the creed and going in the kind of liberal direction that that can go if there's imbalance there, or rather than being a Jesus-only or an excessively uh, pneumatological theology that's focused on redemption or the spiritual life and tends to drop out creation Mm -hmm. as the theater uh, of God's uh, glory, I hope that creation and redemption are held together in in their integral relationship in the book. And Isaiah 40 really does that, it seems to me, standing at this hinge in the book of Isaiah right. between judgment and anticipated um, redemption. But a hinge that's not just true for the book of Isaiah, but in some respects is true of the people of God in the Old Testament in their uh, impending exile, mm-hmm. and then looking forward to their uh, restoration from exile um, in Jesus Christ, ultimately in, yeah. uh, in the New Testament. So you have it broken up, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, one of the things I just it went through my mind, I was thinking, okay, if I were trying to do this, um, were there certain categories where you were like, maybe this fits under Son, or maybe this fits under the Father? You know, you've got the you know one will and all the all those things that go <laughs> along with it. So how did you work through kind of how you what you put where, because there's some things like, you know, you have on the sun section, you have Jesus, you have sin and salvation, 
makes sense that that fits there. You've got providence and creation with the Father, but obviously the Son and Spirit are involved in yes. those things. Um, you have the Spirit on empowering presence and Scripture in the church. So some of it makes sense to me kind of, you know, on the face of it, but then there's that sort of thing, like where the overlaps lay. So how did you work through that, just thinking through the, the method and the structure? So I am really uh, quite simple uh, at heart. And so these decisions were basically tethered to phrases of the creed. Okay. So what's in um, the section under the Father, uh, the Almighty Lord, is really tied to phrases that are suggested by, I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Mm -hmm. of all that is, seen and unseen. And that gets you through, it seems to me, uh, doctrines of creation and providence. Um, uh, Human being, then, is a little bit of a hard choice because it's at the nexus of a doctrine of creation and a doctrine of Christ. Um, who is the true image of God and, of course, the true human in an ultimate sense. Um, But it still seems to me that there is an Old Testament theological anthropology that is there in place by God's eternal plan uh, before the Incarnation. And Mm -hmm. so um, that's why then the section on the Son really does start with Christology. And then it works through redemption because that's where the creed locates for us and for our salvation. He mm-hmm. came down from heaven. And then um, the rest of the material, um, after those gospel doctrines are there, goes under pneumatology because the creed puts it there. Mm-hmm. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And then um, eschatology, you know, at the end. So mm-hmm. I'm sort of uh, pedantically, uh, <laughs> as pedantically as possible, following where the phraseology of the creed would naturally put yeah. these doctrines. Yeah, which makes it, I mean, like I said, it makes sense on the face of it, but then I was wondering if there was a, what the tensions were there, but yeah. There's a tension with putting though. doctrine of scripture in the pneumatology separate from prolegomena. Right. I really thought about, can I move all of prolegomena under pneumatology, and that seemed too late? Yeah. Can I move a doctrine of scripture all up under prolegomena, which is the common evangelical tendency? I think that has some distorting effects if we uh, get so exercised about prolegomena that we detach um, scripture from spirit and church. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to go with the somewhat awkward um, uh, move, uh, or so it might seem, of talking about some of those things that overlap a little bit in two places, because I think the creedal pattern suggests it. Yeah. Well, and it does, it seems like in the book you're acknowledging at certain places where, like, it's not like you don't talk about the Father and Son. Right, when you're exactly. The, yes. So you, you acknowledge it and make it work. Yes, but hopefully yeah. there's an, an orthodox doctrine of appropriations <laughs> there and not uh, tritheism in the yeah, way that's this right. uh, structure works out. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah, you look at the table of contents and it kind of makes sense. And then when you work through it, you know, it does, it does, uh, come out that you're clearly not trying to do that. So <laughs> I'm relieved to hear that. Well, you know, it's, it's funny whenever, uh, anytime that I'm shopping for a book on Amazon or whatever, and I go to the, if I can see the preview, my first, uh, I just, for some reason, I always move toward like, what are they doing here? What are they trying to do here? But once you read it, it's like, oh, this all kind of goes together. Um, so we talked about this a little bit before too. You know, I'm a professor teaching uh, intro to theology class, basically on Trinity and scripture and these kind of doctrines. Um, and so you've written this book. You said in the first podcast that you want it to be sort of a mid-level. You feel like that's the spot where there's just not a lot of options, having a mid-level kind of intro to doctrine. So who were you thinking of, and, and where did the book come from in terms of the content and who you were trying to write it for? Yes. Well, some of those uh, answers, if I told you, I would have to kill you. But, uh, <laughs> but you met- would never Metaphorically speaking, yeah. um, 
But um, a book that has had value for a long time in terms of its size and its scope in some evangelical quarters is Daniel Migliori's book, Faith Seeking Understanding. Mm -hmm. It's 300 pages, um, so it's ideal for one semester use, but it's meatier than some smaller ones, and it's um, you know giving a, a more historical and ecumenical picture of things, but it's doing so from a modern mainline perspective. And in a sense, I want to capture that market uh, from a decidedly evangelical perspective. So um, I didn't quite get 300 pages. Uh, <laughs> there are another 50 pages there. But uh, that's the size that I had in mind of a junior to senior level college and then a one to two semester survey level seminary text that would uh, that, that you could um, believe is readable because the sentences are relatively short, uh, the paragraphs are thought through carefully, jargon is defined, there's a glossary in the back, and so forth. So it would be readable, but it would be meaty enough that you're really getting an education in theological concepts and language beyond just rudimentary basics and then sort of feeling good about theology. Right. Um, there's a place for those books. They're great, and I'm not good enough to write one of them, but teaching the nuts and bolts is important too, and teaching the nuts and bolts in a way that suggests that theology is beautiful in its structure yeah. because God is beautiful and God gives us a revelation of God's beauty. That's what I've tried to capture in this book. Yeah, and you said it came out of a class that you teach at Wheaton. So how yes. long was this a work in progress in your mind? To well, get to I started you... teaching Christian thought at Wheaton in 2001, mm -hmm. and I was on the undergraduate faculty till 2008. So I was teaching this course at least once and sometimes twice a semester to groups of 40 students. Then I had a hiatus um, because of being um, uh, exclusively uh, graduate-oriented in uh, my load for a while, but I will actually teach an undergraduate version of this course in the spring semester again for the first time in several years. You're going to use the book? I am. As awkward as that is, <laughs> uh, I may have to go around and give them all a dollar bill to make sure there are no, uh, right. you know, financial injustices or something. We'll, we'll figure that out. But yeah. I, I'm going to field test my own book and yeah. see what happens. Well, I, yeah, I did a little a little book on Jesus in the Old Testament, a little hermeneutics book that I'm using with my freshman too, and I felt really weird about it. And I asked several colleagues, I was like, is this dirty? And they're like, well, if, you're, if that's what you're teaching, then you want them to read it. You know, it's the method that you're going to use or whatever. Yes. But I did finally have a student that was like, do you get royalties when we buy this? And I was <laughs> yeah. like, not enough to make it worth it. I'm trying to be helpful to you. Like, this is for you. not yes. you know, uh, I'm, trying to make, I'm trying to help my lectures make more sense to you when you read them, kind of a supplemental, but it's not, it's not for the, uh, it's not paying for my kid's college. Or yes. So, yes. Um, so if, if I'm a professor listening to this class, you know, what are some things that you've learned? Uh, you know, I'm a young professor. It's my first semester. Um, seminary students are maybe going to PhD thinking about professors. Uh, in your experience, what are some kind of baseline things when you're dealing with uh, undergraduates in theology? You know, I'm teaching a lot of non-Bible majors. Uh, you were teaching the same at Wheaton. Um, how do you work through some of that? How do I get them to the most fundamental stuff and raise their bar while at the same time not trying to make them all seminary graduates because right. clearly that's not what they're trying to do. So how, how do you work through some of that? In my experience, uh, trust is a crucial factor. One aspect of trust is the students want to have a sense that you have a plan and you know where you're going. Mm -hmm. So that's where learning objectives, glossary, terms defined, and lots of other things come in from the book. Um, 
is trying to give them a sense that there's a scheme here, there's a plan. Another aspect of trust, of course, is building relationships. So I find that frequently the amount of time that I'm talking in the class starts as a higher percentage of class time early in the semester and is able gradually to decline. As they have more and more trust in me and in each other, they are able to take more and more ownership of the Mm -hmm. questions that need to get on the table, the discussions they want to have. And so my percentage of time talking and needing to give many lectures can go on a sliding scale downward over the course of the semester. But that trust is able to develop to make that work if I'm willing to trust that silence is okay, Mm -hmm. that they can um, learn things at their own initiative, but also if I've done some things to give them a plan and to get them oriented um, at the beginning of the um, semester. And part of what we've tried to do with this book is really to focus on giving them theology in a way that's readable and hopefully beautiful and attractive, but to leave bells and whistles out. Yeah. So that this way, the professor has freedom to structure the kinds of application-oriented discussions or the creative hooks that they want to do in terms of taking this to the streets, rather than having my applications or my cultural commentary or whatever. We've just tried to keep that at bay and let the professor be the agent of that in the classroom. Yeah, and so you feel like if you can build that trust as a professor, the extent to which you can challenge them, push them, shape them, that's all the difference in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I knew I, as a student, it was always the professor who I felt like actually cared about me was the one who I was most willing to listen Absolutely. to. Absolutely. And they could, they, could, they could really put you through the ringer in a lot of different ways if you felt like they were doing it because they yes. loved you and wanted to help you and not just because. Yes. Um, the thing I tried out this semester is I flunked out of my first year of college mm-hmm. um, really badly, like 0.9 GPA my first year of college, right out of high school, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Went, went because of a girl. You know, the, all the worst reasons you could possibly go to college. So first day of class, I had them all introduce themselves and I walked them through. Here's some highlights of my life. And one of them is I flunked out of college the first mm. year and now I'm teaching. So you'll be, and it seems like those type, type of things are yes. like, oh, you're a real human being. Like we can, you're not like, you know, uh, expecting us to do something that's, that's unrealistic. And so yes. it feels like when I challenge them on, uh, you know, really challenge them to raise their level or I push back a little bit on something they're like, oh, okay, he's like a normal person. I feel like that's, I feel like trying to be normal to them was like half the battle. But Yes, and I think having a plan is important, but also them realizing that part of your plan is really to listen to them. Yeah. And so if you're not just positioning everything to get to your next point right. or using it in some kind of Socratic maneuver, but if they believe that you're listening well enough that God could actually surprise us with where a conversation goes mm-hmm. and that that could be fruitful... Um, treating them as whole persons in that way and expecting that you might learn something, I think will go a long way in establishing yeah. that relationship. Yeah, that's helpful. I, uh, I feel like if you just, I mean, again, this is my first semester teaching full time, but I'm already feeling like if you don't love the students and don't care about that, how do you do this? Yes. You know, <laughs> because right. there's a lot of it. I mean, lecturing is tiring. Like it's, there's mm-hmm. a, there's I always joke that there's like preaching and teaching tired. It's not marathon tired. It's its own version. Yes. And about halfway through the semester, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, I don't want to get up and go to class today. I am worn out. Yes. You know, but there's also that level of like, this is why I'm here and this is why I'm doing this. I can't imagine not wanting it to be that way you mm-hmm. know and it's not not like an idealistic thing or like i do it perfectly it's just sort of like if you don't love this yes. this is a hard, this is kind of a hard thing to sign up for yes so it could be worse there's a lot worse things you could be doing than teaching the bible to people but it has its own like pastoring it has it its does. own sort of thing so um so what were some things that you learned 
uh, teaching this kind of thing, what were a few like early mistakes you made as a prof that you, you know, on top of some of the practical things you said where you were like, okay, I'm not doing that again, or oh, I'm going to do that every time. What are some things? Well, like? all of us as young profs make things more complicated than we can realistically cover at whatever level. And we often come out of our PhD programs, um, both addicted to content and uh, sure it's interesting in, in ways that it um, may not be at the level that we're teaching. Um, but we also come out often lacking confidence. And so we over-prepare mm. for particular class sessions. You know, we prepare five hours worth of material for one or two hours so that we won't be caught up short with some kind of silence that makes us look like we don't know something. And and we're, welcome to my first semester, Dan. <laughs> we're very afraid to say, I don't know. Whereas yeah. I have found students, um, can distinguish between somebody who's saying, I don't know because they've been lazy and somebody who's saying, I don't know because they're actually in a conversation and they're a capable researcher and they're actually going to go work on an answer as mm -hmm. a result of a, a stimulating conversation. So those humility pieces, you know, um, are uh, a big deal. Um, having and communicating a plan, not just having it, but communicating it um, is something that I, I didn't do adequately enough. Hmm. And the last thing I'll say is uh, writing this book, I learned a lot of these things that I thought I knew in richer detail because I couldn't cheat the way that you can give a slightly more general answer in a classroom and get away with it. When I needed to have all the bases covered, I relearned some things in ways that changed my mind about some things. Uh, and that was a rich experience. Um, made me more convinced that lifelong learning is a real thing. Yeah. Well, that's a good word. I think we should end there. So thanks so much for doing this again. Maybe thanks. Next, my pleasure. Maybe next year at ETS, we'll have a, we'll have a third go around. So. <laughs> well, I won't have another book to promote, but I'm happy to talk anyway. <laughs> well, well, we'll talk about all the things you're going to eventually write. There you we'll, go. We'll figure it out. There right, you thanks, go. Dan. Thank you.